Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. 2,000 years ago, Jesus issued a call to those that gathered around Him. That call was simple. It was a call that said, come and follow me. That's what Jesus said. And now 2,000 years later, that same call, that same invitation is extended to all of us. Jesus is inviting us to follow Him. But what does that mean? What does it look like? Who is it that we're being asked to follow That's what we're going to look at over the next number of weeks here at Wildwood as we begin this fall season by looking at Matthew chapters 8 through 10 in a series that we're calling Follow. But before we look at those verses, I want to just acknowledge that this is a time and a season of change. This is the beginning of a new school year. Just for a moment, would you wave at me if you are experiencing some kind of a change this month, something in your schedule and your routine? Now, those of you who aren't waving, just think about how much harder it is to go to Walmart or Target right now, okay? Um, There is change that is happening for all of us, but this is when our city comes back to life. We love it when university students come back to Norman. It's such a a lifeblood of our city and such an opportunity for us to be able to to, to worship together and to, to follow Jesus together. We love this time of year. But as we head into this, this new year, Um, you're probably looking ahead at your calendar and at your schedule. And at this time of year, everything starts. All of the the practices and the programs and the volunteer opportunities and, and all of those things that have been on hiatus for the last couple of months come back in earnest over the next few weeks. And so as we begin another year together, it's not uncommon for us to feel very busy. I know some of you are like, Mark, stop talking about that because it's just making me anxious thinking about all the things that are on my calendar and my to-do list. But, but here's what I want us to do, just for a moment. I want you to think about uh, either a day that is coming up in the next few days for you or one that you have just experienced in the last month or so where you were very, very busy. Just think for a moment about a very, very busy day for you. I, you know, one of these days, I, somebody said to me this last week, this is one of those days that I wish I had 30 hours because there's just so much to do. So think about a 30-hour kind of day for you. You know, the day where you have commitments in the morning, you've got commitments all, all, all midday and, and lunchtime and all the way into the evening, and you don't know how everything is going to get done, and your kids have 18 practices in every county in central Oklahoma, and you've got to try to figure out a way to make it all work. Think about that kind of day. Now, With that day in mind, I want to ask you a question. Who is it that has the authority or the ability to interrupt your schedule on that day? I believe all of us have somebody in our life or maybe some buddies in our life who can interrupt our life in the midst of a very busy day. I believe that the people that can interrupt our schedule on those busiest of days fall into one of three categories. They may be someone that we love. Someone that we love has the opportunity to interrupt our life. I, I think about my wife. Um, I love my wife. And if I'm in the midst of one of those busy days and she calls me on my phone, I will either answer it or by the very first opportunity, I'm going to get back to her. Why? Because I love her, because we have a relationship together. She has the ability to interrupt my schedule and to get my attention in the midst of even the busiest of times. 
Somebody that we love has the power to do that. But sometimes it's not somebody we love. Sometimes it's just someone that we need has the ability to interrupt our our schedule. Think about this. When was the last time you were waiting for results from a medical test? You had a test. They're going to tell you if you have cancer or no cancer. They're going to tell you if the bone is broken or if it's not broken, if you need surgery or not surgery. You're, You're waiting for that information. And though you may not love the doctor who's going to call you, if you're in the midst of your busyness and your phone rings and you look and it's the doctor's office and you need that information, what do you do? You interrupt what you're doing, you answer the phone, and you engage with that person. Sometimes our schedule can be interrupted by someone that we need. But there's a third category, I think, and that is sometimes our schedule can be interrupted by someone that we revere. Someone that we revere has the ability to, to interrupt our schedule and our flow. I mean, think of it this way. I don't mean to take this political, so we'll say if a current or former U.S. president showed up at your house this afternoon and knocked on the door and you opened it up and there they were, and they said, I need 15 minutes of your time. I don't care if you're in the midst of your busiest of days, you're probably going to make 15 minutes for the president or former president of the United States because it's someone that you revere. Or let's say this, regardless of your school affiliation, if Bob Stoops shows up at your house on the busy day and says, hey, can we grab dinner tonight? You're probably going to clear the schedule and find a way to have dinner with Mr. Stoops. Who has the power to do this? People that we love, people that we need, or people that we revere. Now, I say all of that because we stand here today walking into another busy year, another busy season. You guys have things all over your calendar, responsibilities and things in front of you. And right standing on today, inviting you into tomorrow, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is inviting you to follow him. And when you hear that invitation, there's probably some part of you that thinks, follow him, but I've got so many other things going on. I'm so busy. I've got this. I've got that. I don't, I don't even know. Now, now, here's the thing. Let's just press pause on that for a moment. Following Jesus is way more than just adding something else to your schedule, right? Following Jesus means we're going to follow him into our family. We're going to follow him into our volunteer opportunities. We're going to follow him into our schools, into our workplaces, it's not just another thing. It, it permeates all things in our life. But even that being said, sometimes the, the thought of following Christ is a little overwhelming to us because we think, I'm just so busy. There are so many things competing for my attention. If that's the case, and if that's how you're thinking you might respond, um, let me just offer this suggestion. You feel that way because you've forgotten who it is that's inviting you to follow him. We are reticent to follow Christ when we forget who he is. And we've spent some time today reading passages in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to, in just a moment, look at a, a more in depth at a passage in Matthew chapter 9 that revealed to us the person of Jesus. And why do we do that? We do that because I believe that when we get our eyes focused on the person of Christ, when we remember who he is, when we hear him beckon us to follow him, we don't have to ask the question, should I? We just go. 
I mean, this is a, a, a group of people that is predisposed to following Christ. You came to a church on a Sunday morning. You, you cleared out your schedule to be here today because there was something about the person of Jesus that was interesting to you. But here's the thing. When we think about incorporating and following Christ in every area of our lives, we will be motivated to follow him when we remember who he is. So I want us to remember the person of Christ today by looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. So I'm going to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and we'll see three things from these verses today about the person of Jesus. Matthew 9, verse 1 says this. It says, And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and he came to his own city. Now Mark chapter 2 lets us know that his own city in this instance was the city of Capernaum. It was his adopted hometown. So getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and went to the city of Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, in these eight verses today, I want us to see three things, three things that we need to remember about the person of Jesus. The very first thing we need to remember about the person of Jesus is we need to remember that he is someone that we love, and even more importantly, someone who loves us. We need to remember that he's someone that we love. Now, we see this in the passage, in the crowds flocking to the person of Jesus, now think about what had transpired just before this. Jesus had taught the Sermon on the Mount. He had taught with authority, and he had pointed people to their connection with God and in a way that they had never heard anybody teach before, and so they were attracted to him because of that. They loved him because of the way that he taught and the authority that he taught with. But not only that, as Jesus came down off of that mountain, he did things like he, he healed the, the leper. And they loved that. Look at that amazing thing that he just did. And they were bringing to him all who were sick, and he was healing all of their diseases. The, the people were attracted to Jesus. They loved him. And not only was he doing that, but there were those who were oppressed by demons who were brought to Jesus, and with authority and forcefulness, he cast those demons out of them. And they went from someone who was oppressed to someone who was free, and people just Loved it. They ate it up. They were gathering around him in great numbers. They were chasing him literally around the lake. Wherever he went, they would go. And so Jesus shows up in the city of Capernaum, and people are just crowding around him every way to just see him, to just hear him, to just see the miracles that he might do, to just feel his power touch their life in a new way. They were gathered around him. They loved him, and they could tell that he loved them. Now, let me ask you, do you love Jesus? I mean, have you really stopped and thought recently 
about the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for you? I mean, think for a moment of the very beginning of your relationship with God. Go back to the very beginning. For some of you, it may have been when you were growing up in a Sunday school, in a church someplace. You never really remember a time that you didn't believe. You just kind of grew up in the faith. But there was probably, even for, for you, there was some point where the person of Jesus just became overwhelmingly beautiful to you, where you wanted to trust him and follow him. You remember that moment where it came alive? It might have been an Awana class, a Sunday school class, a youth group meeting. For others of you, it might be something that's happened very recently in the last week or two, or month, or year, where you came to realize the depth of your own sin, and you realize that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin, and you've been set free from that guilt and and that, that shame, and you're rejoicing in that even to this day. But think back to that moment where you first trusted in Christ and the feelings that you had for him. I, I know for me, some of you have heard me tell the story before, but I just think about the, the season where I trusted Christ. I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember that Easter Sunday night, my sophomore year in high school, and I was uh, gathered at a youth group meeting and, and the, the gospel was shared. And I remember so vividly, my, my sin and the forgiveness that Christ offered for my sin was so clear. And I, even at 16, I, I knew the depth of my sin. I, I knew there were things I was ashamed of. There were things that I knew were separating me from God. And I felt the forgiveness and the freedom in Christ in that moment. I remember sitting in the fellowship hall at East Cross United Methodist Church with tears running down my face. And I remember going to Mazio's Pizza in Bartlesville after that, that meeting and sitting around with friends thinking, don't you guys get it? Don't you know who Jesus is and what he has done? It was so amazing, the feeling and the excitement of the identity of Jesus and what he had done for me. And I remember in those early days, too, uh, going and hanging out with my friends, and I, I did what these friends of this paralytic did. The friends of the paralytic, they, they loved Jesus, they were attracted to him, so what did they do? They brought their, their friend who was hurting, and they brought him to the feet of Jesus. And I remember in my early days when I first had trusted in Christ, I remember playing basketball in the playground at Wilson Elementary School with some some friends. And I remember after that, that game, I was inviting them to come to some student ministry activity that we were doing, something really profound like capture the flag or whatever. But I invited them there, not because I just wanted them to be part of my youth group, but because I wanted them to know my Savior. And I remember one of my friends that day looked at me and said, what are you, like Oral Roberts or something? Now, now here's the thing. Let me decode that for you. In, in 1980s, you know, northern Oklahoma, that was not a compliment, all right? Um, but but that, that, was, that was just the, the, the nature of how I was feeling. I just loved Jesus, who he was, what he had done for me, and I wanted to bring and include everybody around me in knowing him. Friends, sometimes we we forget that, don't we? That excitement that we once had, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Why? Because we take our eyes off of the person of Christ. We forget who he is, what he's done for us. We forget the freedom that his death provides for our freedom and deliverance from our sin, our forgiveness. When we forget that, when we take our eyes off of that, he becomes just someone else, someone that's another appointment on a calendar that we can walk away from. But when we remember who he is, we remember that he is someone that we love and who loves us, When he says, follow, we go. First thing we see is that Jesus is someone that we love. The second thing we see 
is that Jesus is someone that we need. We need to remember that he is someone that we need. Now, the paralytic is a great illustration here because he was a person who was a living example of need. Think about the needs a paralytic would have. He can't walk, can't feed himself, can't move from place to place. Everything he did, everything he accomplished, somebody else had to do for him. Even arriving at the scene where Jesus was, he couldn't even do that on his own. Somebody had to carry him there. He was a living illustration of need. His physical need was really obvious. I don't know if you've ever been in a a time or a season of your life where you had some physical limitations. Some of you are living in the midst of that right now. Uh, I've I've been fortunate to not have that happen very often, but several years ago, I ruptured my Achilles tendon. And when when that happened, for for a brief time, I was limited physically in a big way. I, I couldn't I couldn't drive a car. I, I couldn't do certain things. And I had to take a class in Philadelphia for my doctoral program. And um, I couldn't even go there on my own. My wife had to come with me. Now, here's the thing. It was wonderful that my wife had to go with me, but I hated the fact that I needed somebody to care for me in that moment. Have you ever been in those spots? For many of us, that's a temporary condition. But for the paralytic, that was every day. He was a living illustration of physical need. But not only was he an illustration of physical need, he also was an illustration of spiritual need. See, there's a common understanding in the first century that if somebody had a condition like being a paralyzed man, that that would be an evidence of the fact that that person was a sinner or that their parents were sinners. That somehow there was sin that had been committed that led to that condition. That was a common thing. So when people looked at the paralytic, they would have looked at the paralytic and not only seen his physical need, but they also would have looked at him and thought, I wonder whose sin caused that problem. This was illustrated in John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, when Jesus kind of clears up that misunderstanding, but it was a common belief in that day. And so in this story, in this historical time, there is a paralyzed man who is a visual representation of physical and spiritual need. And in that moment, his friends didn't know what to do with him except to bring him to the one that they thought could do something about it. The needs this man had led his friends to bring him to Jesus. Now, This happens in our life too, doesn't it? We tend to pray more when we have physical needs. We tend to pursue God more and more aggressively when we have physical needs. I mean, just think about it. When when you found out that you had cancer or mom had cancer or dad had cancer or this illness or that illness or when you found out that you lost your job or when you found out that you didn't have enough money in the bank to pay that bill, when you had a physical limitation of some kind, when you, your spouse comes home and says, I don't love you anymore, you found out about the affair, when there are physical things that happen in your world, it is in those moments that we realize our physical needs. And at those times, we tend to turn to God more readily. And sometimes it's not long, eloquent prayers in those moments, is it? They're short prayers, like two words, God help. God, why? God, do something. In those moments, we turn to him. That's the case in our life. It's also the case of the life of 
this paralyzed man. And here's what I think is, is fascinating about this story. The, the physical needs of this man were a reminder of his spiritual need. And though there were parts that these individuals had wrong, it wasn't his sin or his parents' sin that caused this. Um, it was just the condition of living in a fallen world. But, but this situation, the physical need reminded them of the spiritual need. And in the same way, in our lives, when we find ourselves experiencing physical needs, let those be an alarm clock for us that remind us of our spiritual need. Because though our physical needs may come and go, or at least our perception of them or understanding of them, our spiritual need is just as real and it's ever constant. We always have a need for forgiveness. We always have a need for restoration. We always have a need for God's provision in our lives to empower us to live the life that he's called us to. Now, God has given us those things freely But if God were ever to take away those blessings, we would be left separated from him forever. It is only through Christ and his continual provision that we have any hope for eternity. Our spiritual need is real. Let the physical needs of our life be alarm clocks that remind us not just of our physical need that causes us to say two-word prayers, God help, but let it also be a reminder of our spiritual need, which is ever-present, that we would go to the Lord and we would pray and ask for His provision of forgiveness and hope and life in Jesus. See, that's the, the story of this man, this paralyzed man that we see. And what's interesting is, as they are aware of his physical need, as they are aware of his spiritual need, they bring him to Jesus. And isn't it interesting to see what Jesus does when the man comes to him? Jesus doesn't see them, and and Mark tells us that the house was so crowded they had to literally rip the roof off to lower their friend down below him. And as this man comes below him, Jesus doesn't go, oh my word, what is going on? Look at all of those needy people. And there's another one. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He looks up and he sees them. And it says that he saw their problem. No, it says he saw their faith. And so he says to the paralytic, listen to his first words. First word, take heart. Next phrase, my son. Can you imagine what that would have sounded like to him? Friends, when we come face to face with our physical needs and we turn to God, he looks at us and he says, take heart, my child. When we come face to face with our spiritual need, and for some of you that may even happen this morning, when you come to realize the depth of our need and our sin and we need forgiveness and we turn to Christ, when we come to him and our need is laid out, you know what he says to us? He says, take heart, my child. When we remember that that's the one who stands before us and invites us to follow him, He's just not another appointment. He's not just something else to do. It's the person of Christ. We interrupt regularly scheduled programming to follow that man. The third thing we see, we need to remember that he's someone that we revere. We need to remember that he is someone that we revere or that we respect. Now, The identity of Jesus comes very clear in this passage. 
Jesus uses this setting with the paralytic and his needs in order to reveal to the world and to us as we read this passage today, his true identity as the son of God. What happens? He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Now, why did the scribes respond that way? You know, again, if you've read the Bible some, you know that you think, well, because they're scribes. That's what they did. The scribes argued with Jesus about everything. So if Jesus said left, they say right. If Jesus says up, they say down. So Jesus says your sins are forgiven, and they get upset. There's some sense where we think, well, they just got upset because they were scribes, but that's not really the point, is it? The scribes actually had some reason to their rhyme. And and their, their reason was this. Who has the authority to forgive sins? Who has the authority to forgive sins? God does. That's right. I don't. Rennie doesn't. Stephanie doesn't. The only one who has the authority to forgive our sins is God himself. And so the scribes looking on, not seeing Jesus' true identity, say, hey, if you're saying that you can forgive sins, then you're saying that you're God, and that is something that people don't do. You're blaspheming. You're in error. You're in sin. And they're upset. Well, what happens next? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, I think this is an interesting thing because some people have looked at this and said, you know, Jesus knows their hearts. He can like see through them with x-ray vision and knows what's going on in the interior of their life. Now, that is a true statement. The sovereign son of God would have known what was happening in the spaces that weren't public. But, but here's the thing. I don't think that Jesus tapped into that side of his power in this moment. I think Jesus just looked at the situation. He looked at their body language, and he can tell. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, he looked at the scribes, and I'm guessing they went from this to this. And those scribes went from this to this. And those scribes went from this to like that, right? So Jesus is looking at this situation, and he is seeing their visible reaction to his action. And he calls them on it. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And he, he gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, this is a verse we need to think about for a minute. Which is easier to say? Now, let me ask you, which is easier to do? So put yourself in this position. You're standing there. There's a man who's been paralyzed for his entire life. He's laying before you, and he is somebody who, like all of us, has fallen short of the glory of God. So which is easier for you to do, to have him stand and walk or to forgive his sin? Which is easier for you to do? Let me give you a hint. It's a tie. They're both impossible for you to do. They're both impossible for me to do. Now, let's think about it with Jesus. Which of those was Jesus, which which of those was harder for Jesus to do? Give you another hint. Neither one. It's a tie. He had power to spare to do both of them. 
So Jesus' point is very clear when he says this. He doesn't say which of these is easier to do, because for him, they're both easy. He says, which is easier to say? Now, this lets us know what was happening. Now think about that. Which is easier to say? Well, I think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because when you say to somebody who's paralyzed, rise and walk, and they don't, you look foolish. Immediately, you can tell the veracity of your statement. But if you say to somebody, your sins are forgiven, in that moment, you can't tell, can you? I mean, it's not like they went from green to purple. I mean, there's no decoder ring that lets you know what happened on the interior of their heart before the throne of God in that moment. And so it is easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk. But Jesus continues, and he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. Now, that's awesome. But why did it happen that way? Because Jesus wanted them to know he had the power to do both. He had the power over the spiritual world. He had the power over the physical world. He had the ability to forgive sins. He has the ability to cause the paralytic to walk. He wanted them to know his identity, that he is one to be revered. He wanted them to know that he was the son of God himself. And he let them know that through the way that this miracle played out. Now, I want to just think about this for a moment. If, if you were there, wouldn't you love to have been there? I mean, this was a packed house, literally. I mean, they were raising the roof. It was so packed in this location. Wouldn't you have loved to be one of the people there? I mean, I would love to be there. I would love to see somebody who has never walked before rise up and not only have the strength to stand on their own two legs, but be able to pick up their bed and not just stand up, but then walk out. I would love to see that. I mean, have you ever seen somebody that has had physical infirmity like that for a long time, the atrophy that happens to their body, and yet this man rises and picks up a mat, starts doing work? He is healed in an instant, in a moment. I would love to see that. And you know what? If if you're honest, you probably would too. Wouldn't it be amazing to see that kind of transformation happen? Well, let me ask you, which of the two miracles, the forgiveness of his sins or rise and walk, which of the two miracles was greater? Let's think about that before you you answer. Think about this. That man was healed physically, but how long was he healed physically? I mean, we have no, it wasn't like he just was healed for a second, but later on in his life, he died. Something else happened to him physically. Either he contracted an illness or he had some kind of an accident. We don't know what happened to him. But he's not still on the planet right now, so he died at some point. So there was a a limitation to that miracle. But think about the miracle of the forgiveness of his sins. What's the expiration date on that one? There isn't one, right? That forgiveness went on forever. And which was the greater need? Though the physical need looked so great, his greater need was really to have his sins forgiven because that would be the answer to his eternal problem, not just his temporary problem. 
And I say all that because I want to encourage us today. I want to remind us, we would love to see a miracle of that magnitude. Guess what? If we have seen somebody go from rejecting Christ to forgiveness in Christ, we have seen a greater miracle than rise, take up your mat, and walk. And if you have seen God work in your life for the forgiveness of your sins, you have seen the greater miracle, not just in someone's life, in your life. If you've seen your children trust Christ, you have seen the miracle in your life, in your family, it has visited your home. Friends, the reason why we celebrated baptism a couple of weeks ago is we were celebrating this new life in Christ. We were celebrating the greater miracle, and it happens in incredible numbers in our world. God is still at work doing these amazing things. So let us not just long for temporary physical relief, but long for the greater miracle. I want to make one last statement about this, and that's just really is we do see some reasons why Jesus did the miracles that he did do, the physical miracles, uh, through this passage of Scripture that that we read today. Three different things I think we see. One reason why Jesus did these miracles was because he just willed it to happen. In chapter 8, verse 2, the leper comes to him and says, if you will, Lord, let me be cleansed, and Jesus says, I will. There were no accidental miracles. It happened by the intentionality of God that these miracles happened. A second thing that these miracles happen because he just cares. In chapter 8, verse 17, there's a quotation from uh, Isaiah's prophecy that talks about Jesus taking our illnesses and bearing our diseases. It's just a reminder of the compassion of God for us. That's another reason why Jesus did these miracles. But the third kind of big category, and I think this helps add some clarity when we see what happened in chapter 9, is that Jesus did these miracles to verify and demonstrate his identity. He wanted everybody to know that he was the Son of God. Why is it that there were a flurry of miracles in the early church, in the book of Acts, to verify that the Holy Spirit had come in that setting? In the history of the church, these miracles have Not that God still doesn't have them at his disposal, but there's not been as many as there were in the time of Christ. Why? Because now there's the testimony of Scripture, there's the testimony of history, there's the testimony of all the things that God has done that comes and accompanies the the presentation of the gospel. But God wanted us to know that he was involved with Christ, and we need to remember who it is that Jesus is. He's not just somebody else. He's someone we revere. He's God. Because of that, what he says about my family or my work or my schedule matters. He's the author of life. Friends, when we remember who it is that is calling us to follow, we'll say yes. It's interesting. Jesus says he did this miracle, verse 6, so that you may know the Son of Man. Do you know Him? You know Him as the one you love, the one you need, the one that you revere, the Son of God? If you don't know Him that way, you can begin to know Him. You can begin to follow Him just by trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. And if we have already begun that journey, Let's remember who is inviting us to follow him this year. Let's go. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship today. Thank you for the privilege of your word that guides us into all truth. And Father, I pray that we would just be a people that remember who you are. 
we would remember the identity of Jesus who bids us to follow Him. Father, that we would not lose that first love that we had at the beginning, but that we would remember all that you have done for us, and we would run after you in all things. Thank you for the opportunity to worship today, and I pray for any in this room who have never trusted in Christ, that today would be the day that they follow you. And now, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with this truth as we sing together of our desire to follow you. In Jesus' name.